0: Namotasa bhagawato rahato sama sambuddhasa Namotasa bhagawato rahato sama sambuddhasa Namotasa bhagawato rahato sama sama sambuddhasa Uttang damang sangang namasami Sometimes you hear this uh, distinction being made of uh, in in, like in Buddhist language or in Buddhist concepts, the difference between ultimate truth and conventional truth. Um, The ultimate truth, some kind of transcendent state being nibbana or unconditioned. Conventional truth kind of Rocks, trees, people, feelings, thoughts, you know, what we all handle. Mm. Um, But there's a a problem with that particular division in that we are either, or generally, it will be the case that uh, we trivialise the conventional, just the conventional stuff, just the thought, just the feeling, just the tree, just the person, just, you know, doesn't really matter. You know, that's the sense, because the real thing is the ultimate transcendent truth, and everything else is just this stuff. Um, and then you can see behind that particular division, you know, if you make that, then uh, certain biases are going to occur, aren't they? You know, why bother with this stuff? The real stuff is beyond there, over there. Mm. And though the Buddha did encourage us not to get too uh, attached or involved uh, with the uh, this apparent world of feelings and thoughts and bodies and trees and rocks, um, he thought, didn't teach us to not be attentive to it either. <laughs> you know, so in attending to it, one one both removes the bias of fascination and the bias of indifference, the bias of aversion and the bias of, of craving. You know, they're both. So you know, like the idea is to approach this reality that. Uh, we're having in terms of our uh, senses, uh, our sights, our sounds, uh, the things that happen to us, and the feelings and thoughts and so forth with a clear attention, not with a so what, or neither on the other hand getting, like, getting really excited and engrossed by it. You know, we can take our thoughts and feelings to be really strong and solid and actually everything we depend on, they're completely true, or we can say it's all a load of old rubbish, who cares, you know, um, both of these biases are to be put aside to really contemplate and understand the nature of what we all experience. Yeah. So it's very much based upon this world realities. There's quite a few of them. <laughs> if you look around, everybody has a different one. Not saying this is some kind of ultimate reality, but also um, not really attempting to find ultimate reality, which is to say, understand the nature of this experience we're having, understand it really truthfully and clearly, and then, you know, your mind will become clearer, less caught up with these biases of aversion, indifference, fascination, passion, fear, denial. You know, and then, then the mind will be clear. That's what he's saying. So more useful, I find more useful. Um, Polarity is not between conventional and ultimate, but between and the one that the Buddha makes more of is whether the mind is noble or whether it's worldly. Yeah. Not not what reality is, but actually what's our mind state? Is it noble? Is it pure? Or is it contaminated? Is it affected by grasping and clinging? And in this, the Buddha does make a strong distinction of, you know, and of course, the aim is that one's mind, one's mind becomes clear and devoid, void of um, clinging, attachments, biases, preconceptions, assumptions, fascination, greed, denial, or the whole thing. Yeah. But what we're still witnessing is the world of thoughts and feelings and so forth. We're bringing a very clear, unbiased attention to it. So this doesn't really. You know, it's not making some either-or statement. It's just saying, you know, you're not looking for something beyond this. You're looking straight at this and, and using and beginning to witness and be truthful to yourself. So there's a strong emphasis on the cultivation of truth. And truth itself is not so much a, a kind of undying state of reality as the, as, as, a, as a function of honesty. honesty and being true in other words, like when you have uh, um, uh, a line that's in true it's straight, it's not bent and distorted so it's true like that I'm not saying it's ultimate but it's actually not not twisted or distorted in any way so it's really referring to the uh, functioning of our mind is the mind acting in terms of truth or is it caught up with something so truth really more clearly in my 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 sense, and you check it out for yourself is more referring to a quality of absolute clear honesty rather than some state you know which is more a platonic idea you know Plato and the Greeks and this idea of there being an ultimate truth of pure ideas pure ideal world that we only see in a very distorted way, but the Buddha never didn't talk, teach it like that. He said, you know, we can experience uh, uh, this cessation of, 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 um, uh, of our activities, of our mind states, of our energies and so forth. But this isn't something you, you kind of see something. You just stop making things up <laughs> when you don't need to. But it isn't that you know that the, uh, 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 an enlightened being operates on two levels, like okay, now I'm going to do conventional stuff, now I'm going to do transcendent stuff. Oh dear, I've got to go and do the conventional stuff, and then I get back to the transcendent later. Um, you can see, from the examples that such as we have, which of course are subject to um, you know the uh, tra- the effects of history and so forth, but at least what they're presenting. Is the Buddha paying, you know, clear attention to all sorts of matters of conduct, you know, down to apparently, you know, how thick a monk's sandals could be. You know, he wasn't going, oh, don't bother me with sandals, you idiot. I want to be a get off to nibana. He's saying, oh, you monk, you know, if you if you walk barefoot, your feet are going to get cut up. So wear wear some sandals, but don't wear lavish, flash ones. Just wear simple, single sole, single layer sandals. Now the Buddha is actually apparently, you know, pick, depicted as making that kind of judgment, that kind of attention, and making it many, many times. Now whether this is is you know we can whether we can rely upon these texts or not, at least these texts are, are trying to, in some way, you know, convey what everyone understood the mind of a Buddha to be like. You know, it was both noble. But it was also one who could give attention to more or less anything, with a clear, unwavering, patient, you know, uh, and every you know accusations and problems be brought to him, and he'd look at it clearly and say what he felt about it. So there wasn't some sense of dismissing or trivialising or uh, the 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 you know this this reality that we experience with its nagging details but actually giving them full attention, clear attention. Yeah, and in fact, even in ways of settling disputes, setting up particular systems where people would, would have to sit and listen to each other and talk things over until, okay, we think we've found out what what the real matter is. So you also had this sense of, of, of faith and confidence that if people basically have good intentions... Get confused, have misunderstand things, disagree with things, even get wryly and nasty to each other, snappy and snarly. If they just sit down and just chill out for a while, yeah, you know, and res- and given mutual uh, respect and you know comfort, they will come to their senses and think, "Hmm, yeah, I did say a few wrong things there. That was a bit silly, wasn't it? You know. Once that's cleared, then we, you know, that." Then we come to a sense of what what where the agreements are, what, what, what's actually happened, or what is suitable. So much of it is placed on just this clearing away of these contaminations that affect us, our fear, our impatience, our you know, craving, and so forth. Uh, yeah? So this is the main emphasis. Yeah. And you're doing that by coming into contact with the world of people and things, daily life events. You know, certainly you know, the Buddha's emphasis was to try to keep one's daily life events simple, clear and moral, you know, so that you're not getting overloaded and really to make one's efforts to live in as you know, uncontaminated way as possible. But still, recognising that this this sometimes it's not that easy because our minds can carry all kinds of of fears and reflexes that we're not that conscious of there's a particular series of instructions that were given to his son Rahula, you know three three suitors and Rahula is one he's he his son and this is good to to recognize this because sometimes the Buddha gets depicted as a bit of a, a bit of a creep for running out on his wife and kid in the middle of the night but actually <laughs> this is one of those. Another misperception—he got framed. They uh, <laughs> wrote this story about three or four hundred years afterwards because they thought it was nice and more romantic than the actual truth of the matter. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the way it goes, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, he did uh, take care of his uh, his wife and his child and his parents to to bring them to this uh, realization of nibbana, which. My dad, who didn't run out and leave me, nice man as he was, did not do so. <laughs> what you gain on, you know, roundabouts and swings, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, this series of instructions, first of all, begins with um, in telling Rahula, you know, whatever you do, don't say, don't say something that isn't true. And it starts off just basically by setting up the foundation of truth. And this is deliberate lies, you know, the most obvious expression of truth. And he uses the example of a of um like a taking a water pitcher of water and he says, You turn it upside down, how much water can that hold? None. So this is just like your mind. You know, if your mind is something that's prone to telling lies, it's just like that. It won't hold anything useful. <laughs> so that's as worthless as your life is going to be. You know, this is a pretty strong language. Uh, I think what happened must have been that Rahul had said at the top of a Fib or something or like the other. So he's making this very strong point to it. So a person who who tells a conscious, deliberate lie their, their, their mind you know, is void of the capacity to really hold uh, hold uh, um, virtues and fulfilling qualities. And he said, you know, what you want to do is check before you do something. Check out. Is this going to be for my welfare? Is it going to be for other people's welfare? Is it for the welfare of both? Do that little check. If it is, you feel that, then it's worth acting upon. Then even while you're doing something, do the same thing. And when you've done something, do the same check. Was that action of mine, did it do me any good? Did it do other people any good? Did it do us both some good? And if it has, then you get this feeling of, well, that was good. That was really good. So then just that, that sense of being honest and then realizing your mind has been in true, has acted in accordance with truth rather than in some kind of a contaminated way, we get this feeling of happiness and, and contentment. Skillful mind states. Yeah. So true both means obviously uh, saying something uh, that has actually happened, but it also means that the mind is not uh, 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 is in true with reality. And this this quality itself, you know, is is uh, something that's kind of quite fragile. So it, so it may sound obvious, you know. I've seen this example of a few years ago when they had the, the lead up to the Iraq war and they were the Secretary of State for the United States has actually had these photographs of some things they photographed in the desert of Iraq saying this is proof that they've got these sites where they're building what was it, weapons of mass destruction. That was the phrase, nice heavy phrase, weapons of mass destruction, you know, I mean what is a weapon of no of no destruction? <laughs> you know, you couldn't say building piddly little weapons, but weapons of mass destruction. So it's you know, emotionally vamped up. And they said they've got the proof, you know, showing it to the people at the United Nations, this is proof, photographs of it. They weren't true. <laughs> there weren't any. And <laughs> you know, this is the kind of world leader with apparent photographic evidence. Yeah. Maybe he thought it was true, but then when you start to look at the context, you know, so America a few years before just been had this terrible disaster in the World Trade Towers. They kind of Muslim, so anybody Muslim could be, well, you know, they're over there somewhere. They have got some sand. They people who live in the sand and do it Islam, blast them anyway. You know, <laughs> to the Iraq, Iran, all the same thing. Uh, so was, of course, it's nothing to do with Iraq this uh, World Trade Towers thing, but a lot of people felt it was because Saddam Hussein was a convenient, nasty guy. They couldn't find out where these other guys were, so we just nuke him instead. <laughs> and so this whole thing, people were prone to believe that already, you know, a Muslim, a tyrant, tyrannical Muslim type, was probably, you know, about to set up something to blast America. they already kind of got that Perception in the mind, so therefore it was, it was credible, because of fear, yeah, because of fear, and and also of course rage and grief. This terrible thing that happened, which one can certainly sympathise with. So the mind gets twisted that way. Another example was uh, a woman. says so it's a woman who was uh, attacked and raped. And then they they uh, got some suspects in, and they it was a it was a black person, black man, so it's got some suspects in, lined them up, and she identified this man who said he'd never done it, but she was was convinced he had, so you know that he got put in jail, and then uh, he was there for twenty years, and then they funded some DNA DNA tests, and found out he didn't um, do this. Um, and the interesting thing was that the person who had done it she she was also shown this guy and, and she said he hadn't and yet when they did the DNA test they found he had yeah. so you know what happened there well, the nice thing about this was when the, the, the fellow who had been in jail uh, when he came out they said uh, you know well, now you've been, you know, you're innocent. How do you feel about that? What do you feel like this woman who put you in Says, Well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> Which is pretty good. And they stay, then they went around as a kind of double act, giving lectures on forgiveness and, and, and honesty and truthfulness. So they, it was quite it was a happy ending, that one. Better than the Iraq War, anyway. But what happened there? Obviously, you know, someone extremely, uh, you know, attacked, State of panic, fear, violence, being violated, mind is very confused. You know? Of course, and then you know, and of course uh, again, uh, you know, the, often the misperception of, of uh, black male is kind of someone of sexual and violent person. So it's it's the kind of racial or ethnic uh, distortion that we can carry. You know. So, yeah, you know. And she wasn't, in her eye, she wasn't lying. She was a deliberate lie. But but uh, in this very, you know, distressed, overwhelmed, fearful, violated state, you know, the mind is not not seeing things clearly. So there, you know, the problem there is we are, you know, see so the first example of fear Capturing the mind, second example, you know, fear and revenge, second example, uh, you know, uh, violation, distress of this kind, uh, fear again, distorts the mind, distorts the mind's clarity. So we want to get things really clear, true. It's not just about telling the truth, it's about getting an accurate perception. And it's pretty obvious that when you look at it, your perception your your receptivity to events gets severely distorted when you're in a you know in certain states of mind, when you're angry, when you're frightened, uh, when you're craving, you know when you've got strong passions running, then it does distort the mind's ability to perceive things, and often we will perceive things in line with certain underlying um, perceptions. Biases, you know, Muslims, bad guys, um, you yeah, know, and Saddam Hussein certainly was, bit the bill, bad guy. Yeah, but he didn't, he wasn't doing this particular thing. You yeah? know, and the same thing can go on all the time, doesn't it, you know, uh, in nas- national uh, branding of other people. Also, we can sometimes recognize that, you know, that that, what we uh, portray other people as can be almost like aspects of our own stuff. You know, now, the only country in the world that does have weapons of mass destruction and has used them, of course, <laughs> is the United States. <laughs> so Isn't that interesting? You know, every <laughs> so... Mm. <laughs> so sometimes you know what, what we this, this is just something to consider, and particularly in terms of one's own mind when you're really concerned to get it right and say actually knowing what a human mind is, it, uh, it's not possible to be totally deluded all the time, but it's also it's possible to be somewhat deluded a lot of the time. You know, somewhat biased, by things that have happened, by misunderstandings, by not seeing things clearly, by these reservoirs of fear and greed and uh, aversion and so forth that, that uh, we all are, are experience, kind of flooding us at times. So when you really honestly know that in yourself, you say, "Well, when my mind's in such a state, it's not not to be acted upon. It can't be in true. It can't be true." Mm. The more powerfully and passionately I, I feel something, probably the less true it is. <laughs> yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that one can't, you know, have a clear perception and feel very firm about that. But this kind of flooded state, when one's, oh, you know, when one's mind is, is rocked and heaving around. Mm. So, but then if, it, if we do are able to clear that and, and we do, and then the Buddha goes on to teach Rahula saying, well also when you do this with your bodily actions, also do it with your speech. Speech also refers to your thinking mind. So when you conceive of something recognize when you're conceiving of something, is that is that doing you some good? Is it doing other people good? Is it, you know? So if I start to conceive of things from a mind of mistrust or fear, you know, doubting or or irritation with others. Is this feeling good for me? Is it doing anybody else any good? Is it for... No, it's not. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, when we contemplate, sometimes that's the case. One's mind is is pressed by these uh, fears, uh, irritation, um, greed, lust, so on. Yeah. So, you know, we don't act upon that. But then, the second set of instructions that the Buddha gives to Rahuli is, is then what do you do to clear this stuff? And this is where he begins to teach him meditation, you know, various forms of meditation, particularly mindfulness of breathing cultivation of kindness, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy, all the stuff, the meditation systems, as a way of bringing the mind into true. And what all these do, fundamentally, is provide two particular qualities. One is the sense of the energy of the mind. The energy of the mind, instead of being you know, flaring up, or, or erratic, or bursting, or flailing, or held back, or compressed, is nice and steady and smooth and bright. This is the process of samatha. So then, such a mind is in a is not, um, you know, contaminated by these forces at that particular time. This quality is something to be encouraged. So when one does meditations, one of the aims is just to to bring around such a such a such a an abiding in a state of of uh, of uh, the, the mental energy. It is not flaring up and it's not stagnant. It's bright, steady. Yeah. This doesn't necessarily uh, solve things completely, because of this, we can still be prone to these uh, negative effects. We can still find our mind suddenly changes shape when we get caught up with things. So, so the next thing you do, you develop um, insight that as you start to look into into any experience we have from a calm place well actually what's this based upon what is this thought based upon what is this perception based upon is it true, can I rely upon it what's its nature this is the inquiry called insight Hmm. sometimes even just this inquiry itself the mind being not supremely absorbed but, but relatively steady calm, you calmly look at something and ask yourself particularly when we have these strong uh, afflictive perceptions and you know they are so mm. the meditation for a start one thing it does is in the process of it it gives you another way of knowing your mind because you can feel it in your body yeah. so quite a lot of our experience of apparent reality is we read something in a newspaper see it on the television hear it on a report of some kind now, it's purely a verbal experience you know, runs in your head, noises, sounds, little cognitive flashes. You think you know something. You think we know something because you get this kind of little cognitive blur happens. But this is is, is a very superficial kind of knowing. Uh, and with meditation, you develop a deeper kind of knowing because you begin to experience also the the effects in terms of the mind, whether it's it excites or stimulates or a pause the results of those those thoughts and inclinations if they leave you feeling sick or groggy or bright or steady or nervous you know you start to see the emotional results of them you can even experience them in a bodily sense you, know, you experience uh, um, in, you know you start to know things through the effect it's having on your body whether your body's tensing up um, defending uh, feeling, depressed or feeling relaxed and open so it it really makes your sense of knowing something much more holistic and from that then you also have the place where you can begin to breathe, just through breathing in, breathing out relaxing, steadying the body looking into the mind you can start to ease up some of these uh, difficult experiences these obsessive experiences because they all have a uh, 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 quality of affecting your nervous system. It's going to be quite chronic, actually, um, because uh, somebody was saying to me the other day just how frustrating it is dealing with with uh, uh, building contractors or or hiring people, they do a fair amount of building work here, and uh, you phone up and you say, so-and-so, so-and-so, so, so oh yeah, don't worry, we'll be round on Tuesday. we are not round on Tuesday. So you phone up and say, oh, we'll get right back to you. They don't get right back to you. And they realize, that when they say it, they don't actually mean it. <laughs> they don't take spoken spoken words to be a strong reality, they're just things you say to people meaning, well we could get around on Tuesday, maybe but you don't say, it, you Say we'll get around on Tuesday or might get back to you if, if we feel like it, but, we, but then we won't, which is more the truth <laughs> it's not out of the question that we'll get back to you you know, but <laughs> miracles do happen but just because I say it doesn't mean it's going to happen and that, that is sort of acceptable you know, that's that an acceptable standard People don't feel they're lying; they just got no full experience of truth. It's just words. You say any old thing, and it's just for the time. It's just something you say, and so you know you realize how how disconnected people can get, not really knowing is it what's what's the mind state that's that with that's happening with that mind state what's that yeah. <laughs> how does it fit in your body what do you mean feeling my body fingers hands you know, what are you talking about actually you've got no real experience of truth as as you know something that's felt and has consequences that if you say things that aren't true there's a consequence as something happens that you can experience a feeling of regret or uncertainty or kind of Feeling like you said something isn't true, there's generally a sort of um, a dizzy feeling of, oh, oh, you know, flustered. That's why often, if you catch somebody at the moment they're, they're not telling the truth, they get flustered defensive. Because that's what it does. When the mind is saying something that is not in accordance with its, you know, with how things are, it's always affected by fear, impatience, it's in a flustered state if you catch it you can see the fluster you know you can feel the fluster there i am denying here i'm covering up again here i'm just fobbing somebody off here i'm saying one thing you know from fear or whatever uh, and you can feel it and it's uh, you know, but if you don't feel it it's fine <laughs> it's just <laughs> and that, that's the real one of the real problems we we're, we're in that uh, people don't necessarily have the the time or the inclination or the skill to really feel what they're thinking, feel what they're saying, feel what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And with that, you can, you know... It's, it's actually very dangerous. How is it that people do badger baiting? You know, tie a badger up, blind it, so that dogs can rip it apart. How do you do that? I mean, it's difficult for me to even talk about it. Such, an, you know, the sense of it is so appalling. How do people do this? You know, are not so disconnected? You know, what does it take to kill somebody? You know, if you're a soldier, you've generally got to get pretty psyched up to do it, with fear and a lot of military ardor and things like that. You have to go out of you have to go out of your mind, really, <laughs> out of the truth of your mind. Now, the two, you know, the beauty of it is that the sense that if we do stay in, in really in true with ourselves. Then we find certain kinds of behavior morally it's disgusting, or just you know I don't want to be there, I don't want to do that it's yeah you know it feels bad it's not because you're trying to be um you know stainless it's just there's a pragmatic sense of this makes me feel bad, this makes me feel furtive uh shifty uh, embarrassed awkward denial you know, that's what happens to it. So this is very important for us to know, and uh, in this process of cle- clearing the mind, one of the senses of honesty is to be absolutely honest to oneself. You know, if we can't feel comfortable about being honest to other people about what's going on in our minds, this in meditation you've got a chance to be. Most important you're not fool, don't fool yourself. <laughs> and in meditation it's a safe place where we can look at our. Instincts and moods and something. Wow, this one's got some heat in it. Uh, And uh, trying to really clear that for our own welfare, for the welfare of others, and for the welfare of both. Then you know, a mind that can do that is like a large receptacle that's open and capable uh, of, of of being full of happiness joy, comfort, and ease, at least. Skillful states. Mind that's upside down doesn't get it. There was an interesting... teacher i came across called byron katie she had just a very simple um not exactly a teaching so much as just a little process she'd encourage people to do just to catch particular repetitive thoughts they had about their partners their father their kids each other themselves and say that particular thought you have oh jesus is it really true and the first one thing, yeah, of course it's true. He said, No, just stop, doesn't really look at it. Is it really, really true? And then, hmm. And how do you know it's true? What is it that gives you the sense of it being true? And generally this means there's a kind of charged up feeling. She did this, he did that. That's how I know it's true because he said that and he, Yeah, yeah, okay. So just noticing that the that, that, that the apparent Truth of a difficult perception is, it is some sort of charged-up state—you know, denial, defense, aggression, fear, blame, mistrust, something like that. Some, you know, you can feel it. So then she says, "Well, not don't try and get rid of that, but just imagine what it'd be like if that wasn't there. Just let yourself play with the idea: of what it would be like if you didn't have that particular train of thought, that particular." Energy going round. Oh. Yeah. And don't you know? See, is there any reason? Is there anything stopping you from going to that place? And is there anything stopping you from letting go of that particular negative thought or impression? No. Just check it. Don't try and get rid of it, but just check. Is there anything stopping you from from letting that pass? Yeah. And you, just, and you just remember what it could be like, and then see what the obstacle is. Often it's our pride, our uh, fear, our righteousness. You know, I've always done this. I've always done this. This should not fair. So that kind of thing's not fair. Principles of some kind, and you can feel, however good they are, there's always kind of niggly holding on sense about it. And then just what it would be like not to have to hold on to being right or wrong or pure or good or bad or just really you nice know, just to stop having to do that. <laughs> stop living in the tribunal, to stop being in the law court, you know, of right and wrong. Oh, 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 you know, and then it's in that place we recognise, okay, so everybody makes mistakes, you know. I kinda of, sometimes it's unforced. Realisations occur. Like, okay, I got it wrong, or well, yeah, but she does that sometimes, but other times she's like this, or whatever. You know, suddenly the the, the, the bias unblocks. And it's a kind of interesting, interesting process when you've got particular um, you know perceptions of places or people or events. It's to run through and actually contact the charge that's there and what's why it's stuck, or how it's stuck, what is the force that sticks it. And her emphasis is not to, in any way, belittle that, or say, forget about it, shrug it off, doesn't matter, but just really contemplate it, and see how much you really want to have that one, how 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 much it's worth for you, and what it would be like without it, and which one you'd like to have. And then just let the mind... You know, once it can see an alternative, it will tend to go to that which is better. The problem with a mind that doesn't meditate is is the mind that doesn't meditate is so caught in its thoughts and perceptions, it doesn't know there's an alternative at that particular time. It doesn't know anything other than the thought or perception that's occupying it at the time. So there isn't anything else but this. Yeah. So that, that clinging becomes a, a, a feature of a mind that has no self-reflection, no ability to, to step back from its perceptions and thoughts. Whenever this occurs, we can, be, we can have a sense of alarm that we're in danger when we're not able to you know, pause, step back, contemplate our thoughts and perceptions then we're in trouble because then you don't the mind doesn't see something other than that and it must either hang on to those thoughts or perceptions or start proliferating on them or start trying to repress them you know it doesn't actually feel the sense of release being anywhere available so it doesn't know where to go. So when we start to recollect that it is possible for us all at any particular moment, to from directly attending to thoughts and feelings as they are but with the, the emphasis on that we're not holding them attaching to them or or pushing them away just trying to contemplate them as processes in themselves the mind starts to get a sense that there is another you know there's a wider space that I can be in and it will tend to go to that this is what happens with people in you know, when their meditation, when their, pro- when their meditative process works. Uh, I mean, you know, we experience something, sense of dispassion, release, openness, whatever, and the mind just goes there because it's a better place to be. Mm-hmm. But the point is, even though when when was had the experience a few times, what can occur is, we think, oh, well, there's this space I can go to Apart from this thought or feeling, yeah, so this thought or feeling doesn't really count. We don't go through the process of actually contacting the thought and feeling. We philosophize about it. Hmm? That is, having had the experience of transcendence for a, for a while, you know, on a few occasions, think, you know, okay, so all thoughts and feelings are just impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, don't really matter. And that idea then replaces the process of experiencing it. Yeah? Like you skip the process. So even though your head knows it's impermanent, your body doesn't. Your heart doesn't. Yeah? You haven't really gone through it again. And it's certainly uh, it's certainly um, wonderfully humbling to realize how enlightened one can be on a good day how unenlightened one could be on a bad day I, think I was enlightened yesterday <laughs> I, know, I know all this stuff I've been studying Buddhism all these years I know thoughts are impermanent and it's still kind of actually realise right now I've got to deal with this one again you know, this silly little knittering thing there's this lovely luminous space I could be in i got to deal with this knittering grumpy grudge You know, this is great because it certainly, you know, kicks the arrogance out, the conceit out, you know, and it brings in a greater deal of compassion. So, the, the third instruction of the Buddha, or I think it was the Buddha, maybe Sariputta, his chief disciple, gave to Rahula was just contemplating all these phenomena as they arise, as, as changeable. it doesn't sound that impressive, but this is not deciding they're impermanent, (laughs) but experiencing them as that. Means you've really got to be with them as they change. You can't kind of say, oh, well, they're impermanent, so what? You've got to actually contact them directly so that it's known not just as an idea, but it's known as a full holistic experience of something that was capturing you Energising you, stimulating you, waning and dissolving, yeah. and there's a real feeling with that—a feeling of release. It's not an intellectual experience. It's not a philosophical statement. It's a feeling of, you know, something that you were caught, bound, energised, fixated, pressed with, oh, and it's like weight coming off. And so that process is then through a very you know, always willing, always humble, you know, to de- you know, to attend to the, you know, sometimes embarrassing quasi realities of one's mind <laughs> with a sense of real patience and give this quality attention, not obsessive, but attention that can see it as a process. And then, you know, because some of, this, some of our, our fears and, and worries and grievances are extremely potent, extremely charged, you touch them and they start proliferating. Yeah. There's something also terribly human about the fact that sometimes we just can't do it. You just can't. It's too strong, too reactive. So you just got to say, OK, all I know is uh, don't act upon that, put it to one side, try to at least keep your mind away from that. Think, think in other terms. Try to stimulate other ways of thinking. Yeah. And get back to that. Yeah. Because it's possible, you know, to, to uh a feeling that, that is honest too. It's honesty. But it's that honesty is not uh, prone to conceit. You know, know, if we said, "Well, who's the most enlightened person in the room?", there'd be a little bit of charge over. Well, you know, who is? If you say, "Who?", you know, who can tell the truth best? Well, it's not not very interesting, is it? (laughs) Who can be truthful about their state of mind? be truth about their 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 jealousy and spite. You know thinking, put put your hand up. Who's most honest about their jealousy and spite? I mean nobody's hands goes up, you know. <laughs> There's no real you no know, real charisma in that, is there? <laughs> but who can who can be realise ultimate reality? Well, yeah, I want to be one of those. Yeah. And so you see the kind of the bias that can cause us to to overstep the real process—that's the most important thing—and what, in fact, the Buddha spent most of his time teaching. If you look in the in the scriptures, you know the time, the amount of time he mentions in nibbana compared with the amount of times he talks about hindrances, defilements, impermanence, um, need for honesty, need for virtue, need for renunciation. Is in the time he talks about the goal of uh, the experience of release is very mu- very small. <laughs> now and then he's saying there is, you know, and it will lead to this, but it's like five percent. Mostly he's talking about you know get get real, <laughs> get your hands on this stuff. Don't think it's something terribly personal that only you have. This is this is the story of where, why we're here. You know? And as long as we can keep honest with ourselves. Then there's a sense, even in being honest about one's own limitations of difficulties, there's a sense of straightness, you know, straightness, uprightness. Uh, and then this is this is available for all of us. The unflustered mind, the mind that's not furtive, denying, covering, projecting, dumping on others. Just saying, you know, I have this particular thing. That's the way it is for me now. And there's a certain there's something. That's very beautiful about that. Hmm. So this is the <coughs> recommended process: the truth, and the, the, you know, the, then this will lead to, to uh, a clearing, a release, and uh, it's generally the expression is one of experiencing release rather than um, truth. Uh, truth is a more relative. Um, skillful means than a a final result certainly it's true uh, but the main quality is not it's also released until we when we until we know that until that experience is happening for us we can know something's not true in true in our own minds so when we feel that sense of the you know Weight or the gnawing or the pressures or the anticipations of the future or the regurgitating the past. It's time for us to say what's going on here? You know, why is this why is this happening now? <laughs> you know, Something twenty years ago, still stuck with this one, Hmm. still stuck with that feeling of grudge. Well wow, it's twenty years ago. Uh, but you better get on board with it because it's going to be there for another 40 years otherwise. (laughs) It just doesn't go away. (laughs) It just doesn't go away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, as this process can be rather exacting, I wish uh, everyone to uh, take it lightly and... uh, Proceed proceed with patience and goodwill. (laughs) So thank you for your attention.